The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn to Proverbs chapter 1. And we're going to start there. I'm super excited because we are starting a series. I've wanted to do this for years. Uh, we're going to study the book of Proverbs. The series is called The Way of Wisdom. And that's going to make much more sense uh, after today, hopefully, and, and even more as we make our way through the book. Now, as we've done with the book of Psalms, uh, we're not going to try to take Proverbs all in one big gulp. We're going to sip on it from time to time. Uh, we'll go through a few chapters. We're going to leave room in between to ponder on what we've studied, marinating and meditating on how the truth we encounter applies practically and can be obeyed joyfully. So before we start uh, in Proverbs, I want to remove one potential roadblock. There may be others, but a prominent theory is that the Proverbs were originally written for and studied by young men. And whether or not this is true, you're going to notice that many times the Proverbs are pointed towards sons, for example, as the instruction begins to say, my son, you know, such and such and such. So uh, verse 8 is, is a good example. We're about to read it. It says, hear, my son, your father's teaching. Uh, and, and some have seen this as yet another evidence that the Bible has a male-centric focus or a bias towards men. However, what would help is if we read the second half of that verse, uh, here it is. Hear my son, your father's instructions, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Okay? So even though many of the lessons that we see in Proverbs are addressed to a male audience, uh, an example would be that, you know, there's a warning against, say, a seductive woman. All right? That doesn't mean that the instruction goes to a son and it uses a seductive woman as an example. It doesn't mean that the truth doesn't apply if the gender roles are switched. Okay? The bottom line is here, the wisdom that we are given, uh, we know it's sourced from women. Listen to your mother's teaching. And it's also meant to be received by women. Okay? So hopefully that's not a stumbling block for us as we move forward. Uh, verse 4 also helps us to know the intended audience of Proverbs is as broad as humanity itself. Uh, what we see in verse 4 is to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Now, if you don't see yourself as either young or naive, and thus maybe feel like you have no need for the wisdom and instruction found in Proverbs, I would ask you to consider with me again the words of Jesus found in Matthew 18. This is verse 3. Here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Part of what Jesus is saying here is that if we do not take the humble posture of a child, knowing that no matter how wise we are, how much knowledge we have, there is always room for growth. Then we... The issue is then we've taken the posture of, if we decide that we don't need to do that, right? If we skip that kind of posture taking, what we've done is take the posture of what the Proverbs call a fool. And a fool thinks they know all that they need to know, and they only want to tell others about their brilliant and fully formed opinions. And we see a warning against that kind of foolishness throughout this book. Solomon 
the author of most of these Proverbs, and, and widely regarded as one of the wisest men to ever live, he set a great example for us in this principle that I'm talking about right now, when God told him he would give him whatever he desired. I'm going to read you a short excerpt from uh, the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. It says this, In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So we see Solomon is approached by God and says, let me know what you want. Solomon says, I'm like a little child. What I need is your wisdom and understanding to perform this task that you've asked of me. Solomon was a pretty smart guy. That is a pretty good posture to take. Here's the thing. If you compare yourself to other people, you may decide you have no need to grow in wisdom. But if you compare yourself with God, you will know the room you have to grow is so vast it cannot be measured. Now, I know someone in here might be thinking, wait a minute, was that a long and careful way of saying I'm not as smart or wise as I think I am? To you, sir or madam, I would answer, yes, that is correct. <laughs> that was a slow and careful way to say you may not be, probably are not, definitely are not as wise or smart as you think you are. Humility, as we approach the Proverbs, as we approach all of life, but in particular in studying this book is going to be important, Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 19. I'm hoping we can do that with humble eyes and humble hearts. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head, an ornament about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they, light in, they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Praise God for his word. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to tackle this. We'll take uh, and work on verses 1 through 6. We're going to skip 7, work on the rest, and then come back to 7, okay? So the first six verses 
are an introduction to the purpose of Proverbs. I told you we got to lay some groundwork tonight. So for some of you, this may come dangerously close to feeling like a class, but we're going to keep moving on in Proverbs, and it's vitally important that we take a minute to understand how to approach this book in order to get from it what God intends for us to have, okay? So uh, we're going to do that. Uh, The first six verses are introducing us to Proverbs, giving us the purpose the Hebrew word for proverb is masal. And what that means, basically, it's they're short sayings that point to big truths. All right? Also, in, in Proverbs, there is a poetic element, many poetic elements. And what that means is, especially because it's Hebrew poetry, it's going to create extra work for modern readers to really understand what they are saying. All right? And, and hopefully, you know, tonight we'll lay out some of what we're going to need in order to do that well moving forward. In these first six verses, we see a bunch of synonyms that begin to unpack the purpose of the Proverbs and the multi-layered meaning of that purpose given in verse 2. Verse 2 says, to know wisdom and instruction. Okay? So as we take a few minutes to work out the nuance of these synonyms, first I, I want to give credit to a Proverbs devotional written by Tim and Kathy Keller that I found very helpful. Five stars, highly recommend, okay? Uh, I actually know for a fact that I've given this Proverbs devotional to many of the leaders here at Love City as a gift. So that, that resource was very helpful in understanding uh, even these first six verses and how to think about Proverbs, because it is and can be complicated. There's a lot of potential pitfalls and ways to come at Proverbs that will lead to confusion. So uh, a helpful analogy that they used as they were kind of laying this out to explain the Proverbs is they said, if the Bible was a medicine cabinet, that the Psalms would be an ointment that you would put onto inflamed skin to help soothe it and heal it. But the Proverbs would be more like smelling salts to startle you into alertness. Okay, so they're both wisdom literature. There is some comparison between the Psalms and the Proverbs, but they are quite different, right? And so uh, we'll see that as we keep digging here. One of the first things we need to consider in understanding how to approach the Proverbs is, is the poetic elements, okay? So we're going to encounter a lot of metaphors. We're going to encounter a lot of imagery, language, And what this is, it's often an invitation to think more deeply about how the truth being conveyed translates into practical, real-life application. Jesus also used that teaching method. If you think about it, oftentimes, if not most of the time when he was teaching, he would look around, seeds, this, that, you know, he had examples and he had imagery and word pictures. And so it's a powerful way to help us learn and to help us push past the surface level and think about multiple ways and layers in which something might apply to us. We also need to keep in mind as we're studying Proverbs that the way we think about efficiency and the organizing of information in the modern West is much different than in the ancient Near East. That's going to come up. We tend to think in either or, or linear and kind of logical patterns, okay? And if we insist on trying to make Proverbs fit into that box, we're going to struggle sometimes. It's, it wasn't written that way. That's not the way the writers thought, and so uh, it's, that would create problems for us. I'm going to give you an example because I'm not sure if you even know 
what I mean when I'm talking about linear logic and you know efficiency patterns of how we organize information. So I'll just give you an example. I think it'll be helpful. So in Proverbs 12, we are told that the path toward disaster can seem right to a fool. But in chapter 16, we're told that same path can look right to anyone. Okay, right? So which one is it? And, and that's in, in a Western kind of linear logical approach, we would think there we've found a contradiction. Well, here it said this, and here it's saying this, but what actually is happening is we're being, too, we're being told two similar but different things, okay? Fools will often run headlong towards destruction with a smile on their face because of their foolishness. But sometimes, even those who have thought and prayed and sought counsel will find themselves on a path that is suddenly turned towards destruction. It wasn't a matter of a lack of applying wisdom. It's that this particular path had a hard bend, and just around the bend, man, there was, there was difficulty there. Okay, so that happens sometimes too. The wise know that in a world broken by sin, even the right path can lead through pain. But if you only read Proverbs 12 the one that talked about the fool in the path of destruction, and you didn't take into account what is said in chapter 16, you could come away believing that hardship always means someone has been foolish. You see what I'm saying? So that's, it's, it's not a contradiction. It's that you, there's an aggregate of all kinds of these sayings that are said in the Proverbs, and there's kind of a cumulative effect. You, you, you really need to take it all into account. And it's not just that take all of the rest of the scriptures into account, right? So if you, if you pull one proverb that says, you know, um, the, the fools are always going to be on the path of destruction, and, and you, you take that and you say, okay, I'm, now I'm gonna, every situation I look at, I'm going to look at through that one phrase in Proverbs. Proverbs isn't really meant to be dealt with like that. You've got to take the rest of it into account, okay? And it's, that's important, right? Because if you, you, could, if you, you don't want to build doctrine off of a, a proverb, okay? That's real important. There, there, so what I'm saying is there's a way in which the Proverbs must be held loosely. And I don't mean in, in the truthfulness of what they say. What they say is true, but they need to be held loosely with an understanding that every statement made may not be a comprehensive or full dealing with the subject it's addressing. Okay? You're going to go through Proverbs, you're going to see some things said about marriage, and the way it's stated the point of the proverb wasn't to tell you everything you need to know about marriage in one proverb. It was talking about a facet of marriage in Proverbs. But if you take that one, you're like, this, this is all I need to know about it, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You might even find yourself in contradiction with something else the Bible teaches because you need the whole picture. Okay? Is that making sense? It's important that we get this if we're going to tackle this book, okay, <laughs> um, correctly. So, uh, the, the wisdom of Proverbs needs to be considered altogether, and it needs to be viewed through the lens of the rest of what the Scriptures teach. Okay, if at this point, I know you might be, if you're thinking, man, this is so much preface, can we just get on with it, right? <laughs> remember, I want you to remember, the first six verses of the book give us the purpose of the book. It takes the first six verses to lay out for us, here's why this exists and here's what we're doing. And so it makes sense for us to take a minute to gain some wisdom about how to gain wisdom from the Proverbs, right? That's all we're doing. Uh, amen. Okay, so I told you, we've got these synonyms in the first, synonyms for wisdom, right? Um, and, and kind of it builds out and helps us understand the depth of what Proverbs is talking about when it says wisdom. 
So we're going to deal with these synonyms found in the first six verses, okay? Uh, the first is, we, we see it in verse 2, to know wisdom. Okay, what is wisdom? Let's not take that for granted. A short and fairly common way to define wisdom is to contrast it with knowledge, right? So knowledge, you'll, this has been often said, and it may not be the most filled out definition of wisdom, but it, it helps to get us started. Knowledge is having the facts, Wisdom is knowing how to apply those facts to situations in life. And it's important that we first get that difference, right? Because most people, when we think of intelligence, we think of knowledge. We think that person could go on Jeopardy and smoke it, right? Like, that's a smart person. And that, there is an intelligence that it has to do with knowing facts, but then there's also this other side of knowing what to do with the facts and how they apply to life. And that's actually the more elusive one, <laughs> as we'll see as we continue through Proverbs. And if you just think about your own experience in life and interacting with people, and maybe yourself, you know, amen. No? <laughs> yes? Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> it was true for me. Uh, the, the main Hebrew word for wisdom in Proverbs is hakma, and it includes being moral, but it's also a lot more than that. Uh, some decisions in life only require knowledge, okay? Like uh, following a recipe, for example. You just need the ingredients in the order, and then you do the thing. You whisk it, and you put it in, and you bake it. All you need is the knowledge to follow the recipe. That You don't need the application of wisdom. The instructions are there, right? So knowledge will get you through and get your quiche made right, or whatever you're doing, all right? So some decisions that you do only need knowledge. Some decisions only require following the rules, right? Um, don't murder people. You don't need wisdom for that one. There's a very clear rule in your Bible that says don't murder people. You don't need wisdom to apply to that. It's a very thick black line. Don't do it. Decision made, right? If I'm going to obey the Bible, I'm going to obey the Lord. And, you know, not going to be a psychopath. I'm not going to murder people. Easy. However, <laughs> there are not facts or commandments in the scriptures that will tell you if and who to marry. You're not going to find a scripture that's going to tell you what job to take, what city to live in. However, making wrong decisions on these things can have devastating consequences. Wisdom is at least in part being able to take the facts and the commands that we do have, along with the leading of the Holy Spirit, and make all of the thousands of decisions in our lives that exist between the margins of knowledge and commandments. Proverbs aims to help us with growing in that ability. Amen. The next word we see is to know wisdom and instruction. Okay, The Hebrew word for instruction is masar. It means training with strong accountability. So it implies wisdom often comes from both having leadership and friends in your life who can put you in check, which I know is an exciting idea in 2020 America because we're so about accountability and submission and things like that. We like those words. Those are, you know, bumper sticker words that make us happy. They're not really, in case you were wondering. That was sarcasm. So not only that you have leadership and friends in your life that can put you in check, but it also, there's this idea contained in this that we, we learn from mistakes. 
So to seek and respond to instruction, it, it goes hand in hand with discipline. So it's things like learning to think before reacting, to abandon impulsiveness and overreacting in favor of circumspection and introspection, and also by persevering through hardship so that we grow in resilience. And in doing that, we get to eat the sweet fruit of wisdom and instruction. So kind of all of that is contained in that idea. And again, all of these synonyms are building out and helping us understand what Proverbs is talking about when it says, this is the purpose of the book, to know wisdom and instruction. And it goes on. It says, to discern the sayings of the understandings. To discern the sayings of understanding. We see that in verse 2. So discernment, what's being talked about there? Insight. The word insight is a good synonym for the discernment we see spoken of here. It is basically, right, in Hebrew can be difficult, but basically it's the ability to notice subtle differences that, that others may miss, okay? Stretch for an example here, not sure if it's a good one, but here we go, right? If, if, you, hand, if, you, hand, if you hand me a drill, no, if I hand you a drill, you may not have any idea if it's a good drill or not, okay? Depending on your experience with tools. But if you hand me a drill, I can tell you quickly by the way the chuck feels, by the weight of it, by the trigger, by the settings that are available on it. I can tell you whether it's going to hold up to a tough job or fall apart. Many of you, I can hand you any brand drill and you're going to go, yep, that's a drill. That's what I know about it, right? But there's going to be subtle differences, right? And, you know, I know there's a few guys in here that would like to argue with me about what brands have the differences and um, they're, most of them are wrong, um, unless they agree with me on this subject, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, however, so I could, I, could sh- I could talk to you and bore you about the subtle differences in a drill for a long time. However, if, if me and Pastor Jordan are sitting in a room and we both listen to a song, he can pick out all kinds of little subtle elements and, and talk about stuff that I would never notice, and I don't, wouldn't even know what he's talking about, okay? Uh, and so... Th- the point in that is that the practical application of discernment, where, where that comes into play, is that you don't fall into the trap of seeing everything in life as black and white or seeing everything in life as shades of gray, okay? And this helps you to avoid seeing people as just good or bad, but it, it gives you the ability to understand that behaviors and motives are often a complex mixture of factors, Okay? We're still talking about what discernment is, all up underneath the umbrella of wisdom. Discernment helps us not to be naive about the motives of others, but also not to be overly harsh in our judgment. It's important. Discernment helps you to stay out of the ditches of legalism and relativism, because both of them steal power from the gospel, and both are unhelpful extremes. And so another stated purpose of Proverbs is to help us be able to pick up on these subtle differences in life and in people in particular, in ourselves even, okay? Uh, it's, it's little differences that, that the average person may miss. Proverbs is going to help us catch them because we need to. Next we see it talks about prudence, or it talks about wise behavior, it talks about prudence, um, and it talks about discretion here. To give prudence to the naive, to give 
the youth, knowledge, and discretion. That's in verses 3 and 4. All of these words grouped together, they're, they're, they're closely linked. And what they have to do with is the ability to plan, okay? To anticipate problems and then plot a course forward, okay? When we have prudence and discretion, they help us avoid the dangers of either overconfidence or the paralyzing effects of insecurity and too much caution. Because both of those can be a problem. <laughs> they are a problem in, in different situations for most of us. Uh, this, this dynamic that I'm talking about, it, it plays out pretty prominently in, in comic book depictions of the relationship between Iron Man and Captain America. So if you're not a, common, if you're not a comic book nerd, uh, I will explain it enough for you to get what I'm talking about. If you are a comic book nerd, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? But Iron Man and Captain America, they both have a quasi-leadership role over the group of superheroes known as the Avengers. Anybody geeked out yet? I'm having fun. I like the Marvel Universe. So here's, here's the thing. You've got two different personalities. Iron Man is impulsive, and he kind of makes a plan as he goes, right? The fight starts. He doesn't, we're not going to sit around and talk about it. It's, it's out, and let's rock, Okay. On the other hand, and that many times leads to problems. <laughs> a plan would have been helpful. But Captain America sometimes overplans, even though rarely does a plan go like you thought it would once a battle starts, right? And that's true of life as well, right? So there's, there's, those are kind of a caricature of the extremes, and what we want is a balance between planning and action, okay? And the line between planning and action, it's not always obvious, nor is it always the same depending on the situation. <laughs> One situation, it, it may be better to lean heavier towards the planning side than the action side. Some situations call for, let's roll, right? Now, hopefully what's happening as we're working through these synonyms and we're seeing all of the variants contained up under this idea of Proverbs teaching us to be wiser, hopefully you're getting a little bit overwhelmed by all of these different synonyms and elements to wisdom. And that really is the whole point here. It's to humble us into understanding how much we need help and continued growth and how much more room there is for us to grow in these things, right? Just talking about discernment by itself or just talking about wise behavior, prudence, and discretion by itself and how much help we can use in getting better at those things. Proverbs, the purpose why God put this in the scriptures is to build us up in all these things. And we all need help in one, at least, but probably all of these areas. Amen. It has been often said that the smarter and wiser people get, the more aware they become of what they don't know. If you're like, well, that's stupid, you probably don't hang out with very many smart people. So just hang out with some smart people and they'll tell you. The smarter they got, the more they were made aware of, the more they realized how much they didn't actually know. <laughs> and that's true in the kingdom of God and growing in the wisdom of God. The uh, Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's going to be a temptation with every new scripture you memorize or every new spiritual principle you think you master. There's going to be a temptation for you to get puffed up. But what should actually happen is the closer you get to the Lord, the more magnificent and big he gets, the smaller you feel. In a good way. Amen.
The truth is, guys, it is painfully easy to be dumb and confident. A fact that social media comment sections have made abundantly clear. But to be wise and humble takes the knowledge of God, the instruction of his word, and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit working in our minds and hearts. Now, let's look at verses 8 through 19. We're going to have a good crash course here right off the bat in how it is we should interpret Proverbs and and in understanding the Proverbs. So let's just read it again. Remember where we're at. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol. Even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So, if we just read that, and you thought anything close to, ha, You tried to scare me into thinking I need the wisdom of Proverbs. I have never joined a band of thieves and robbed and killed anybody to get their stuff. I'm already wise. Give me my badge. I've graduated. If if you were anywhere near that, you just failed the test. Congratulations. You get a dunce cap, not a ribbon, okay? Verses 11 through 18 are an example, a metaphor of the principle being taught. The point that is, we're after here is found in the bookends, okay? In, in 10 and 19. In 10 we see, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Then it goes into an example of, if a band of thieves tries to get you to throw in and come help them murder people to get their stuff, don't do that. But the point is, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So you're not off the hook just because you haven't joined a band of thieves, nor does this not apply to you. Then we find the summary. Verse 19. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Joining a band of thieves and pillaging the countryside is not the only way people get enticed by those who want to sin at the expense of other people. There's lots of ways. And, and you might thinking, be thinking, well, yeah, sure, but, but, it, but that says those who gain by way of violence, and I hate violence, so I, I think, you know, I've, I've basically got this, but consider this. One layer of the wisdom that we're seeing here definitely addresses violence in a classical sense, okay? But trying to gain something by hurting other people is not limited to hitting them or stabbing them, okay? Proverbs 18 says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. So what about sinners on the internet when they start destroying somebody with a quick judgment or ill-informed opinion? Are you tempted to join the slander? What does it say? My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And does it always have to be that somebody's saying to you, hey, come join us in our folly? 
Or is it sometimes just that a bunch of people are already headed that way and you, f- you feel that magnetic kind of gravitational pull into that foolishness? How about when people are gossiping and tearing others down? Are you tempted to join them in feeling better about yourself because someone else is being put down? The lessons here, go, they go layers deep. We are all tempted to join in with the crowd, even if they are sinning, because if others are doing it, it, it feels justified. And it is often at the expense of others that the mob is getting their sense of satisfaction. The truth is, participation in this kind of sin may feel good for a moment, but verse 19 says it steals life from those who participate. That's what's true about it. And there's a lot more that could be said on this topic. We could have taken the whole time to unpack all of the ways that we get enticed into sin by others who are already headed towards that foolishness. We could talk a lot about how violence in all its different forms steals life from those who use that and try to put others down, try to use others in any way to get themselves up to the next level. But mainly what I wanted to do by us working through this and taking a minute to unpack it is to teach us how not to approach the Proverbs (laughs) and how also we can benefit from the treasure of truth that they hold. My point is, if you would have read this and said, I don't see any application here. I can't remember the last time a band of thieves invited me to come kill people and steal stuff. That's when, if we do that and we just stay at that literal face value, we will miss much of what the Proverbs has to say to us. We've got to pay attention to why we launched into this example of thieves and all this crazy stuff. The point was, my son, when sinners entice you, do not consent to go with them. And the point is that everyone who gains by violence, everyone who gains by hurting others and putting them down, that steals life. It takes away life from those, whatever they get, whoever's gaining by that, it's going to end up hurting them in the end. Reap what you sow. If we breeze over these things at face value, we're going to miss the layers of instruction and application, but if we assume every section has something that we can learn and grow from, then these wise sayings, they're going to have their intended effect on our hearts and on our minds and on our actions. Now, let's, I told you we would come back to verse 7, and we're doing that because verse 7, it's kind of a linchpin to this whole conversation of how to approach this book in particular, but also life in general. Let's read verse 7 again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear here, first of all, we need to know is not terror. It is awe and reverence for the power and the majesty and the goodness of God. That is what it means here to say the fear of God. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 7 This is a key, an important key to following Jesus. As we grow in discipleship, our thinking should shift from imposing our views upon the Bible and then making the Word of God defend itself to letting the Word of God shape our views and making every contrary claim defend itself. 
I'm going to say that again because it's real, real important. As we grow in discipleship, our thinking should shift from imposing our views upon the Bible, wherever we got those, and then make the Word of God defend itself, to letting the Word of God shape our views and make every contrary claim defend itself. So what I'm saying is anything that would come up against the Word of God and say, whatever the Word of God is saying is not true, this is true. As we grow in discipleship and grow closer to Christ, any claim like that should be the one that in our minds has to defend itself, not the Word. Now, I understand that we need to be adept, according to 1 Peter 3.15, at defending what we believe for those who are not at that place. But I'm talking about what's going on in our minds and hearts as disciples and followers of Jesus. I do understand what I'm saying is a big claim. It's fair for us to ask, we should ask, why would we seek to shift our thinking in this way? How do we know that the God of the Bible deserves this kind of loyalty and allegiance, where what we're doing, what I'm saying we should be doing is we consider his word to be the starting point for how we perceive the world around us and how we live in it. Any situation that comes up, the word of God should be the place that we start. It should be assumed as true. And then any other contrary input, it, sh- it should have to fight its way in. Why, why would we do that? That's, <laughs> you're basing, you know, People say, well, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's, that's what I'm telling you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's what I'm telling you to do. Here's, here's the basket right here. 66 books. 39 old, 27 new. Genesis to Revelation. There's your basket. I'm saying followers of Jesus, all our eggs go in there. And, but, but why, man? That's, that's a big deal. And I've heard some say, right? To a conversation like this, they would say, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, I understand what you're saying, but man, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I just wish, I wish God would, I wish God would like show himself, right? If he's real, I just wish, I wish he would show up, like appear in the sky and, and you know, tell us. Then if he, if he would do that, then, then I, you know, sure, then I would believe his word and I would make it the foundation for all my thinking and I would, every, everything that was contrary to that, I would cast that down. Yeah, but man, why, why can't he just make it obvious, make it real? Why can't he just show up in the sky, right, and, and, and prove himself? And friends, the answer to that is that he did way better than showing up in the sky one time. Because here's the thing. If God right now just rolled back the curtain of reality and showed up to the world and said, Hey, I'm God, obey me, and, and, then, and then disappeared, look, half of the world would somehow say, Oh, that was just a group hallucination. I don't know. I can't explain the science yet, but surely that, you know, I don't know. We were all just tripped. Maybe the atmosphere, you know, there was a high carbon dioxide count that day and everyone was just a little loopy. Here's the thing. God did far better than showing up one time or writing a message in the sky. He sent Jesus to live among us for 33 years, man, born of a virgin in the town that, they, that the prophets said he would at the exact time they said he would in the way they said he would. Jesus walked and ate and existed and walked among us, was here in the flesh for 33 years. What do you mean if God would show up and prove that he's real? He did. So, so what do we do? Well, 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 I wish he'd do it again. Well, I'm sorry. He's done what he needs to do. The burden of proof is now on you, dear friend, not on him. He's done all that should ever be asked and more 
to show how worthy he is of all of our trust and allegiance and loyalty. How do we do this? How do we see the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge? That's, you see what I th- The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. That means my starting point is who God is and what God has said. And everything is going to be based off of that. That is a life-altering paradigm for most people. But it is absolutely what we are called to. How do we... How do we do that? How do we obey verse 7? How do we trust God that much? That's really the question. The birth, life, teachings, and death of Jesus are the reason that we can take this approach with confidence. Because what God did in sending Christ, not only in saying and foreshadowing through all his prophets and holy men how Jesus would come, when he would come, and what he would do, but Jesus showing up, born of the Virgin Mary, in the town of Bethlehem, that all of that happened, that Jesus taught what he taught, that he did what he did, that he ended up dying on a cross in our place for our sins, that he then, three days later, rose from the grave just like he said he would. It all comes down... Why, how can I trust that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? How can I put all of my eggs in that basket? Friend, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to make a judgment based on the fullest revelation we have of who God is in Christ, whether or not that's who you want to trust. What do we know about God? Because Jesus came. What do we know about God? Because Jesus came just like he said he would. Well, we know that when he says something, he's got the power to back it up. We know God's not a liar. We know when God says something's going to happen, it happens. Even if it's wild that a virgin gives birth to a son in the town of Bethlehem, right? God is trustworthy. He's true. What else do we know that Jesus came? We know that God is not aloof. We know that he didn't just create the world, set it spinning, and say, all right, let's see how they do. Because that's how some, that, that's how some people see God. We know that's not the case because he was not willing to just sit on his throne in heaven and watch the earth destroy itself and watch sin ravage us and end up leading us into separation from him for eternity. He got in the mix. He came and got right down in it. And it wasn't like he visited for a week. God himself took on the frailty of flesh and lived a life among us for 33 years until we murdered him. So we know that God is not distant or uncaring. We know he's trustworthy. We know he's caring. We know he's powerful, right? Because not only did Jesus die upon the cross, but then he raised up out of the grave. Death was defeated by our God. So we know he is master over creation. And Jesus telegraphed that a little bit too when he did stuff like, I don't know, walking on the water, telling storms to be quiet, multiplying bread and fish and feeding 5,000 people. You know, so, so we see in a lot of what Jesus did and said that God is the master of the universe. So if you're like, well, okay, he's trustworthy, sure. Um, he's not distant, yeah. But man, if I'm going to trust him where I see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge, I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket. I need to know like he's the top of the totem pole. There's not some other God that's going to come along and like, oops, I should have been allegiant to him. That ain't going to happen. Because we're talking about the God that said, let there be, and there was. 
And so everything exists under his domain, his authority, and his power. So we got a God that's trustworthy. We got a God that's powerful. We got a God that's not distant. And we have a God that is good. We know because of the teachings of Jesus. We, God is, and what, is we, what do we mean that God's good? Just that he isn't bad? No. He is tender. He cares. He's that powerful. He's that omnipotent. He's that mighty. And yet... The very heart of Christ is touched as he walks by the hurting. He touches the lepers on purpose. The lepers, friends, not the leopards. He touches the lepers, the ones that no one else would touch, the ones that everyone else was scared to be anywhere near them because they didn't want the disease. They didn't want the nasty on them. But our king, he came and got right up in there, didn't he? And he put his hands on them. He's not just good in some general sense. He's good in the sense that understanding the love of God displayed in Christ, it it is the benchmark of goodness. It's the high watermark of what we could possibly mean when we say good. So why, how can you go to this all eggs in the basket? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. How can you submit yourself to this process of God forming and shaping you so that Everything you think and do comes first. You stand upon his word as a foundation. You're not, you're not bringing in cultural influence. It's not the way you were raised. That's not the high authority of how you process what you're going through. It's his word first. And if anything else comes in and says, well, you should go left when the Bible says you should go right, that thing has to sit down and be quiet. Why would I go there? I would go there because of Jesus, because there's no questions left about God's power, his goodness, his love, his great care for us. He's worthy of all of that and more. That's why, because of Christ, we've been left with no reason for doubt. We've been left with no excuses for disobedience. None. The gospel is the reason The gospel tells us everything we need to know about God, to be able to trust that we can get on our knees in front of him and trust it and say to him, whatever you say is what I'm going to do. Whatever you want is what I'm going to want. Take all my desires and everything that might keep me from doing what it is you would have for me and expel those and replace them with yours. It's how we can see ourselves as slaves of God and just be so happy about it. What a good master. What a faithful master. What a powerful master. And we've been invited, friends. If you're here today and you're someone that would say, yeah, man, you're excited about it, but I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not there. I, I can't say that Jesus is my master. Well, dear friend, I'm asking you to take into consideration what I just said. What are you waiting for? Because if you're waiting for skywriting or some other big sign from God to prove that he's real, dear friend, the sign's already come. The word has already become flesh. Jesus, the incarnate Holy One, walked among us, taught, ate, healed. God has done all that is necessary for us to know that what he has said can be trusted. The question left for you is, will you? Will you trust him? Will you believe what his word has said? that his intentions toward you are good, that he loves you. Praise God. May we fear the Lord and seek the way of wisdom for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Proverbs. Thank you. Thank you that it's going to be work for us to be in America in 2020 
to have all of the influences that have shaped the way we think, for us to approach this ancient book and the wisdom it contains, we know we're not going to be able to do it just with our mental faculties and, and bring forth from it and receive from it what it is you have for us. And so we throw ourselves upon your mercy. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge, Lord, that we don't have all the wisdom we need. We don't have all the discernment we need. We don't have any of all we need. We know there's room for us to grow in all these things. And so we're asking you to help us. Thank you, Lord, you said if we would ask for wisdom, you would give it. I thank you, Lord, that you delight when your children come and humbly ask you for more understanding and more discernment and more of all the things that you want to pour into us. Thank you that you delight to give those gifts. Thank you that you don't withhold them. You want to pour them out. But sometimes, Lord, we, we hold back. We, we, we aren't open to receiving it. But God, what we're saying is we hear you. We believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We know that your word is the right basis for building the entirety of our life and understanding. Lord, please forgive us for all the times that we've acted like you have not proven how powerful and good and loving and trustworthy you are. Lord, forgive us for our doubts. Thank you that you're patient and long-suffering with our doubts. Thank you that you don't cast us away. God, you've, you've done so much to prove yourself trustworthy. You would be right and just to cast us away, to doubt you at all, and yet you, you, you don't do that. You're patient and you're kind and you're gentle, and it's your loving kindness that draws men to repentance. And so, God, we, just, we revel in your goodness. We revel in your power. We are thankful for the book of Proverbs. We're thankful for the entirety of the scriptures, and we just ask that you would lead us and guide us as we go scripture by scripture through this book. Lord, we are expecting to be changed. We are expecting to be shaped and formed. And we know, Lord, you're going to use this as a part of the process you're working in all of us to make us more like you. Thank you for your commitment to that. Thank you that when you start that process in us, you've promised not to stop it. And God, I just pray right now for anybody within the sound of my voice that may hear this later that has yet to decide you are worthy to be trusted. God, I ask that the beauty and the truth of your gospel lived out by the community of your people, the church, and also spoke out on our lips, Lord, that as your gospel is preached by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would seize their hearts, and then they would see that they were made for communion and fellowship with you. May they receive with joy the salvation you give as a free gift by faith in Christ. Thank you, God. We know we couldn't earn it. It's all because of you. We give you all the glory and honor and praise. We declare your great majesty and holiness. We thank you for your favor upon us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give, or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.